Warning, this show is about true crime and its contents may not be appropriate for children. This is the Crimecasters Network with Alicia Sophias and Ronnie Dahl, two rogue reporters breaking newsroom rules to take you behind the crime scene tape. The case we're talking about today, Crimecasters, involves the hottest new DNA testing trend and is still unfolding as we speak. Once it's over, it will either clear or implicate possibly one of the most prolific serial killers alive. He happens to be a twin, too, like you, Ronnie. We'll get to him later. Now, imagine your sister disappears one day, and for years you hope and pray she is alive somewhere and just doesn't want to be found, until you come to terms that she is probably dead. That happened to Shauna Christian when her sister Shelly vanished in 1994. And it's horrible enough, but what she learned earlier this year was way worse. Not only was her sister murdered, but it may be at the hands of a killer who has taken the lives of up to 40 women and children. Shelly's murder is just the tip of the iceberg, and while you may not recognize her name, you may recognize the name she went by for the 28 years before she was identified, Matilda. Because Matilda gained national attention when a forensic artist did a 3D reconstruction from her skeletal remains to see if anyone could ID her. We'll put it up on our website. It was all over national media, and you've probably seen it before. It all started when rabbit hunters find her badly decomposed body in a wooded area near Coopersville, Michigan, back on November 6, 1994. The victim is nude and covered with sticks and brush like someone was trying to hide her body to cover up his crime. When Ottawa County Sheriff's deputies respond to the scene, it's jarring but much too familiar because it reminds them a lot of a string of other murders in the area. Bodies keep turning up. Altogether, 12 murders in just about two years. Most of the victims are sex workers or in the drug scene. Some are Jane Doe's and all are unsolved. While the cases have some differences, there are just one too many similarities. So that's when that dreaded term starts getting thrown around in the community. You know, the one detectives hate to use because it elicits so much fear. I'm talking about serial killer. And just to be clear, it is mostly the media and community who say it first. Finally, though, law enforcement has to admit it is possible. At the time, Lieutenant Carol Price of the nearby Grand Rapids Police Department has to come out and address the issue. She says, we're not denying that it's a possibility, but we don't concentrate on that theory to the exclusion of others. They say you follow the evidence. It's a very PC response, but there's no denying the cases are too close for comfort. So officers and deputies from all over the region set up a 14-member task force to try to crack the cases. For some reason, the Jane Doe known as Matilda really resonates with the community, especially when they do the clay reconstruction and she actually has a face. Now everyone wants to know her name so they can solve the mystery and bring her justice. Around the same time, a suspected child killer sits down in the interrogation hot seat with investigators in Indiana. 
It's Larry Dwayne Hall, and his name is on the radar of detectives from all over the Midwest for kidnappings and murder going back nearly two decades. Get this, when a suspicious man in a van tries to pick up two young girls riding their bikes, they remember that stranger danger warning their parents have instilled, especially about the ones in creepy vans, and the girls are smart enough to stay away and even remember his license plate number. Police run the license 85B3752, and it comes back to one Larry Hall. And when officers pull him over just four days before the body known as Matilda is found, guess what they find inside his van? It's what detectives call a kill kit. This really is scary. Yeah. So what they find is a knife, a mask, a bundle of rope, and a flyer about a teenager who disappeared nearby. Her bloody clothes were found in a field, but she's still missing today. Police couldn't tie Hall to her case, but fast forward two weeks to the interrogation room where an FBI agent is asking him about another crime, a high-profile one, involving the kidnapping and murder of a 15-year-old Jessica Roach. The FBI is involved because she went missing in Illinois, but her body was discovered in Indiana, so it crossed state lines. The interrogation goes from morning to the early morning hours of the next day, and ultimately Hall is booked in county jail after a confession. One of the problems? Investigators took no notes. They didn't tape record it. They didn't video it. Nothing. Basically, they wrote out what he confessed to and had him sign it. It was enough to get him on a federal kidnapping charge, but he was never charged with murder. After an eight-day trial, a jury convicted him of kidnapping Jessica Roach for the purposes of sexual gratification and transporting her across state lines. That earned him life in a federal prison. After his conviction, detectives and victims' families in several Midwestern states compared notes. They tied him to dozens of stalking, kidnapping, and murder cases. The thing about Larry Hall is, he and his twin brother Gary, they had an unusual hobby. They were military reenactors, so they would travel all over the Midwest in their free time. And it just so happens the string of unsolved murders matches up with the reenactment schedule of the Hall brothers, specifically Larry's. So we're going to put a link on our website so you can see all of the unsolved cases that he is suspected of. It is a long mm -hmm. list. It is daunting. And on that list is 29-year-old Shelly Christian. Up until a couple months ago, it still said Matilda. But last fall, the cold case unit in Ottawa County wanted to change that. Two detectives, Sarah Philman and Allison Anderson, who we are going to hear from soon, team up with the DNA Doe Project to try to give Matilda back her real name. They have a lot of Jane Doe's, but they choose Matilda because her remains are preserved inside, so her DNA is readily available for testing. They send it off to a private lab where researchers use genetic genealogy, which if you're in the true crime community, you know that's a huge buzzword phrase right now, and it pays off. It leads them to a woman in Minnesota named Shauna Christian, which takes us back to the beginning of our story. What detectives didn't know is that Shauna has been waiting for their call for decades. In the years since her sister disappeared, 
She scoured missing persons' websites, spending countless hours posting her sister's picture, sharing her story, and staring at drawings and renderings of Jane Doe's all over the country. None of them quite fit. One did get her attention, though, the Jane Doe named Matilda in Michigan. She's going to tell you the story in a few minutes, and you need to hear this. And when you start to look at it, the timing did fit, and Matilda had knee surgery, like her sister, but it listed Matilda as part Hispanic, which her sister isn't. So the age was also off. She kept searching. But she did keep coming back to that rendering for some reason. So when she got that call and detectives told her it's possible their Jane Doe was related to her and told her the name Matilda, Shauna's heart dropped. She just knew. They did a DNA swab of her mom to confirm everything. And in January of this year, the results came back. Matilda was, in fact, 29-year-old Shelley Christian. The community finally saw the real face of the person they kept in their hearts all of these years. With that came a renewed interest to figure out who took her life. They aren't just assuming it was Larry Hall. In fact, nearly three decades later, detectives are starting from ground zero. This is not one of those cold cases that gets lost in a file cabinet somewhere collecting dust. They are actually hitting the pavement trying to find her killer. This is a rare move, one that they hope pays off. Usually it's about time and money, or actually the lack of time and money, why cold cases don't get the attention they deserve. But luckily, a generous donor in the community made the resources available to help solve Shelley's case and one more Jane Doe. Ronnie and I will tell you about her later. Next, hear from both detectives leading the charge. But first, Shauna joins us with her urgent plea for justice for her sister. You're listening to Crime Casters Network. We've been talking a lot about Shelly Christian, and I am so happy to be joined by her sister, Shauna, right now. Shauna Christian, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Everyone, I, I kept saying, like, everyone in the community, for some reason, resonated with Matilda at the time. She was in their hearts. A lot of them had her picture nearby. Yeah. I mean, what is it like to think about all of these people were holding your sister in their hearts and they didn't even know why? You know, it's meant the world to me. Um, she was loved from the moment that she was found. And it is really, it warms my heart. And I, I feel like they took care of her for all those years. I didn't know where she was. And now I get to be part of it with the community that they can put a face and I get to thank them. That is one of my main goals also is to thank everyone because she was never forgotten in Michigan. Never forgotten. What was it like when you got the phone call? I was saddened, but I had known in my heart since she became missing that, you know, she was deceased. I mean, in my heart, I knew that. So I was sad to get the news, but it also was somewhat a relief to know that they had found her and that she can 
be brought home, have a resting place with a name. Were you on pretty much every message board of Jane Doe's in the country? Did this consume you? Um, it did take a big chunk of my time every week. I was on every site, every group. Um, I looked at hundreds of, unfortunately, morgue pictures. When you came across the Jane Doe known as Matilda, all the way over here in Michigan, something hit you. Even yes. though the description was wrong, even though it didn't really completely look like your sister, something right. resonated. Explain that because it's hard. Uh, I, I'm actually getting chills just uh, when you say that because um, I would look at every state. I would take a state probably per week or, you know, multiple states. And I would go through each of the unidentified people in the characteristics and some of the stuff they could find about this person. And when I saw Matilda, it first, the name, it's my daughter's favorite movie. My daughter is 30. We love Matilda. We named our cat that still is alive 20 years. This cat is named Matilda. Oh my goodness. I didn't know that. You yes. named your cat Matilda. Yeah. And she's 20 years old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She is right here. <laughs> Hi, Matilda. Matilda. Okay. Yeah. And so you're searching for your sister and mm -hmm. your Matilda's by your side. And there's your biggest clue. When they said that, I, I can't even explain to you what that meant in it. I feel my sister was with me in this journey. I do. And I, it, it was like a connection that I had with her all over again. Tell us about Shelly. What do you want people to know about your sister? She was a loving person. She cared for people. She volunteered in a nursing home when she was a teenager. She was a great mother. Um, she had a good heart. She just had troubles with life and it led her down that path. But deep down, she was, you know, she's a, she was a great person. Do you ever just break down or was that something that you were doing before and now you're too focused? What's the hardest part of all of this? I really want to find out who did this to her and how, because the nightmares that I have are, you know, they're scary because in my nightmares, it's Shelly's you know, crying out. And, you know, I, I think it will help my soul, to be honest. Um, I know it's hard to, to find out what happened and who did it. That's, that's what I want to do for her. It is my goal now. My goal, I found her, we found her, everyone found her. And now the goal is to get justice for her. I'm now joined by Ottawa County Sheriff's Office Detective Sarah Philman and Allison Anderson. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for Thank having you. us.
You guys are hitting the ground running. So often this doesn't happen with cold cases. How are you feeling about this investigation? It's hard when you dig so deep into a case to not feel some sort of personal responsibility or connection for, for finishing that or you know getting to the next step. So I think we feel pretty proud of that for one and pretty thankful that we were able to have the resources to do it. I mean, first of all, what were you even doing in 1994? I was still in high school. I was in the police academy. Why do you think people's hearts went out to Matilda so much? You know, where she was found in the area between Marne and Coopersville is pretty small and pretty rural and a pretty tight community. And I think that that was pretty shocking um, to that community. You have familial DNA and you make the phone call. What was that like? It was unreal, I think. It was amazing, it was exciting. Uh, we didn't want to get ahead of ourselves, um, but we knew that it was a pretty good lead for us. Um, I think that when we called uh, Shauna, that we did do it on a conference call. So we were both able to speak to her and hear what she's saying. And um, I think she thought it was a joke. Um, so it was very exciting um, to let her know that this was the real deal. I think it was rewarding. I think it was a relief. Um, but also uh, now is where now we got to get down to the nitty gritty and try to figure out what happened. That's true. You guys have this high of finding out, oh my goodness, we can finally give her a name. And that's the first half of the justice, right? But now comes the difficult part. And in cold cases, often you're not able to, to put resources toward actually doing a real investigation from scratch. And I know a lot of people have preconceived notions of this case. They already feel like they know what happened, but you guys are not using any paradigms. You're really starting from scratch. Right. And we really have, I mean, just, just like you see on TV, um, you know, we have papers taped up on the wall and, and we have sessions of, okay, who could have done this, you know? And so we're kind of starting from scratch with many different alternative hypotheses of what could have happened, who could have done this and how she ended up here. What are some pieces that you're looking to the public to help with? I think ultimately we're looking for people that knew her at that time, that she may have spoken to, um, that she may have confided in about, about her plans, about what she wanted to do. Um, if there was anybody here in Michigan that they knew she knew or why she would have come to Michigan. Um, those are all questions that we would like to get answered. We've managed to get through almost all of this without saying the words serial killer, but the community kind of has hung on to that and the internet has hung on to that and internet sleuths all kind of just place her in this box saying, well, yep, she was one of the victims of Larry Duane Hall and that's it. But that's not what you guys are coming at this with, right? We kind of had to make the decision as a team and as partners that you know, we needed to step back and, and there was opinions uh, back in the, you know, in the 90s during the task when there was a task force and, and a large amount of murders that were happening in the Grand Rapids area um, that uh, there was kind of a, an assumption that it was, you know, one of a, a few guys that were in the area. Um, but we've kind of stepped back from that um, and we're um, researching information that the task force, um, you know, had gathered back in the 90s. 
um, and in the 2000s um, and, and trying to put that together and see how um, Shelley's case connects or how it's similar. Um, we're finding a lot of differences um, in those cases. We're finding some similarities in those cases. So um, to say for sure that that all uh, 12 or you know 11 of, of the homicides that happened in that that few years um, in between like 94 and 96, to say that all of them are related would be premature for us at this point. Do you ever talk to Shelly? Do you ever look at her picture and just, you know, think about the person that she is and that's kind of why you're moving forward and so motivated? There's a picture still in my office of Shelly. Um, there's actually the, the drawing picture um, and the actual picture of her. And I think that Sarah and I look at that often um, and ask questions. I mean, maybe not out loud, but you know, I mean, we wanna know who she was. I mean, we have so many questions that, um, that we would like to get answered. For the first year that we worked on this, we had those pictures, um, you know, the, the clay uh, figure, photograph and also the drawing of her um, taped on Allison's uh, whiteboard. And we had written underneath, um, you know, who are you? And um, what's your name? Or mm -hmm. yeah, maybe what's your name said underneath. And, um, and it was almost like a, a ceremony when we were able to erase that from the whiteboard and write her name under there. And, um, and I think that was, that was a wonderful day. In your hearts, do you feel like Shelly can get justice. Do you feel like this is a solvable case? Absolutely. I feel that we're gonna do everything in our power um, to make that a reality. Continue the conversation with your hosts, Alicia and Ronnie, on any of your favorite social media platforms. Find us at Crimecasters and let's talk true crime. This is the part of the show where we go off script and have the conversations we have when we are investigating these cases. First, let's give a huge shout out mm -hmm. to the detectives taking this on. Oh my, I mean, like deep breath, right? Because isn't this just rare? <laughs> like I said. And I don't think it's that detectives don't want to do this. So many actually put in countless hours of their own time to try to solve some of these cases. But the reality is, other cases are piling up. They don't have the money either. And I mean, it's amazing. They got this donor who came forward. And sometimes that's all it takes is just the resources available to do another DNA test. It's not cheap. Um, but before we go any further, can we talk about the cat? <laughs> because I can't stop thinking about the cat. It's like just, I still get chills about it. Isn't that amazing? Her sister was leading yes. her to her. Do you believe in that? Yeah, apps. Oh my gosh. I couldn't believe in it anymore. I absolutely do because all of these victims' families have told us, I'm sure a million have told you stories. It's like, there are all these crazy things that happen. And sometimes it's just a feeling like Shauna said, when she saw Matilda first, even it made her look because of the name, because her cat Matilda was sitting right there. But then reading it or looking at it, for some reason, she said just this warm surge went through her body. And it was like, I think this is her. But imagine how heartbreaking it is to just look, have no, like, across the nation. 
you're looking at morgue photos, you're looking at renderings, and you're just trying to see your loved one in their face. It's like, oh my gosh. And we've done these stories way too many times. And Detective Sergeant Sarah Krebs, she's with the Michigan State Police here, and she's a forensic artist. And I did a story with her way back in Lansing. Yeah. Uh, the first time I met Sarah, and she, it was about that, exactly this, how she was sculpting an image out of the skeleton, uh, the head, you know, the, the remains, to try to put a face to it. And, of course, they can't get it close, but they're hoping it gets close enough to where someone recognizes them. Um, I wonder if she did this one. We'll have to ask her because yeah. I do know that it's, it's been such a big part of her life that she helped start um, the Michigan State Police Missing Persons Unit. And they'll do a lot of these seminars or events where, you know, the families of missing persons will come out and they ask for their DNA and they collect the DNA to try to put it against some of the remains that they have found. I think I can see a few similarities in Matilda. Obviously, the eye color's off, but the wig they put on her, I have a bone to pick with whoever <laughs> chose that because it just it, it dated. It made her look too old, and it just didn't work. Um, luckily, we hope another family gets justice because of this donor, too. So there is another Jane Doe that they have funding to test. Um, her name is Jenny. Well, that's what they call her. Ottawa County, they always name their Jane Doe's. Yeah, um, I like some that, departments though. do that. I like it too, because it's not just a Jane Doe, a Jane Doe. So Jenny was found in a wooded area in Blendon Township, Michigan, in October of 1967, just a few days after her death. And someone had beaten and strangled her. Detectives have worked hundreds of hours trying to ID her, but it just never happened. They say she was black. She was young. Her age was hard to pinpoint, but they could tell she was a young woman. She was about five foot eight and only weighed about a hundred pounds. So hopefully someone out there will see it and know who she is. And we'll put the composite sketch of her up on our website. Um, so can I ask you too, though, uh, who is this donor? Do we know? No, they didn't say who the donor was, um, but I'm uh, congratulations, whoever you are, because you are really changing lives. I mean, a lot of people, the last thing they think when they're trying to make a donation is maybe, oh, maybe I'll donate it to a sheriff's office. <laughs> but that's something to think about because you, ch you can change lives and bring justice to people. Larry Hall. Yeah. Why Larry do they Hall. think he could be her killer? Oh, there have been, he's never been charged with a murder. We're going to say that at the beginning. But right. he, he is in a federal prison for life. It's because he's confessed to other murders. Not nearly as many as have been linked to him. He made some of the confessions to a man named Christopher Holly Martin, who ended up writing the book Urges, a chronicle of serial killer Larry Hall. Christopher tells me that he has spoken with Larry Hall several times and that they ex exchange letters. He has a lot of letters from him. And during those conversations, Christopher says he was able to get some very helpful information that has provided closure to families. It's worth noting Christopher researched Larry Hall a lot over the years. Um, and he actually gave us a tip to look into, which is the case of Deanie Peters, who was abducted from Forest Hills Central Middle School in Grand Rapids in 1981. I actually came across that 
uh, missing persons report and murder report when I was doing investigation for this one. She's never been found. Detectives have a suspect and they were pretty confident it was him. But this author, Christopher, is convinced she is also one of Larry Hall's victims. He says it fits the MO. It's around the same time. And he was traveling to the area for his Civil War reenactments at that time. So who knows how many people. But there's a lot. It's heartbreaking. It really is. Um, Hey, let's talk a little bit about the uh, genetic genealogy. Have you done one of the tests? Well, okay. I was going to ask you the same thing. I have not done one because I think of this. It's like there have been so many controversies over this. Um, There was a headline in the New York Times, I remember last year, your DNA test could send a relative to jail. And it's like that there is... There are so many ethical issues surrounding this. I have not done 23andMe or Ancestry. Have you done it? No, I haven't. Um, My brother did, Mm. but people don't understand. I listened to a podcast on this, and they were talking about the ethics of this. And in the beginning, this was just, you know, an innocent enough situation. And it can really help with health issues in someone's life. But I believe it was the FBI who came to them first and said, hey, we want this. It could help with this. And then it's kind of snowballed. So read the fine print because I believe the fine print now says this information may be used by law enforcement. Or don't commit crimes, (laughs) right? (laughs) I guess that's the bigger picture. My mom did one and I was really upset. I was like, she's like, what do you have to hide? And I'm like, I just think that, you know, it's just crazy. You never know you're going to get a call and, and find out things about your family's history you may not want to find out. I will say this, though. Cece Moore is my hero. I want to put a poster of her on my wall in my bedroom. I love her. She has pioneered this field. She is just doing such amazing things, and and we should all just bow down to her. (laughs) So bringing so many families justice. But think before you do 23andMe. I would be interested (laughs) to know if anyone out there has had that knock on the door to say, hey, do you know someone, and it's led to their relative being arrested? Yeah. Because we see it in the headlines on some of these old cold cases, but has that happened to anyone out there? So right if it has, us. let us know. Uh, with that, up next, our true crime genius weighs in on this week's case. It's time to get schooled by the teen sensation of true crime. Here's our resident boy genius with this week's sidebar. My name is Ryan Kester, and I'm an 18-year-old pre-law junior at the University of Texas at Dallas. And ever since I was nine years old, I've been researching cases, attending trials, and pouring over hundreds of thousands of pages of court documents, all in the name of true crime. On today's episode of Sidebar, we're going to be discussing one of the most important scientific advances in the true crime community. Everybody knows the story of the East Area Rapist, the Golden State Killer, or the original Night Stalker. Whatever you want to call him, take your pick. And how he was caught through Ancestry.com. Or was he? Because if you'll do a little digging, you'll realize that in actuality, he wasn't caught through 23andMe or Ancestry.com or any of the other DNA websites that the media threw out there. He was actually caught through an open source public DNA database known as GEDmatch.com. Essentially, what this database is, is it's a composition of millions of users DNA profiles from sites like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. 
the users have the option to submit their raw data that that website provides them to GED Match in an effort to learn more information about themselves and their family tree than the initial website will provide. So how does this relate to the Golden State Killer or the original Night Stalker? Basically, with GEDmatch.com, there's no limit. Law enforcement is able to upload profiles taken from crime scenes, DNA profiles, and locate relatives of people who match that DNA profile. It's worth noting that they cannot do this with Ancestry.com and 23andMe. I reviewed the law enforcement legal guides for both of those sites. Neither will voluntarily work for law enforcement. GED Match, on the other hand, is a database. It is not a company. They don't have protections for its users. It's purely a resource. So law enforcement accessing DNA from 23andMe or Ancestry is entirely dependent on if they can get a subpoena. Whereas with GED Match, they simply have to go onto the website and upload a profile. That being said, it's also worth noting that DNA relation is becoming more and more exact. A pair of third cousins is less than 1% related in terms of genetic, genetic genealogy. But we are closer than we realize to the people around us. Currently, about half a percent of the U.S. population, adult population, is on GEDmatch.com. If that number ever goes up to 2%, law enforcement will be able to, without a warrant, connect any suspect to their third cousin via DNA matching. It's crazy to think about. But not only could they connect suspects, they could also, potentially, connect any unidentified victim. In a true two-sided coin situation, the privacy implications of a database like GED Match is kind of scary for the rights of defendants being processed through our criminal justice system. But on the other hand, it's revolutionary when it comes to identifying victims of violent crime that have gone unidentified for so many years. We already have DNA databases of missing people with known samples. Families and law enforcement can work to upload profiles of missing individuals to these databases on the chance that once the remains are located, another agency or that same agency might be able to match the two profiles. However, this is the first time that the idea of working backwards through traditional genealogical methods has been proposed. It's essentially a waiting game and a process of elimination once a profile has been uploaded to a website like GED Match before the target profile that law enforcement provides is able to be connected to a person. Take, for instance, the case of Marsha King. Law enforcement for years were puzzled by the discovery in 1981 of the body of a woman who had become known as the Buckskin Girl. They submitted the profile to the National Missing and Unidentified Person System without any luck. And the case went cold until 2017, when the DNA Doe Project stepped in. Known for working to identify unidentified bodies, they were able to identify the buckskin girl as 21-year-old Marsha King from Little Rock, Arkansas, via the location of a first cousin through GEDmatch.com. The leader of the project was quoted as saying, This is not your run-of-the-mill DNA solves unidentified person. I think you'll hear today that this is some really revolutionary and groundbreaking work. And Dr. Elizabeth Murray was right. Think of a case like Matilda, all of those years unidentified. It's possible that, eventually, with the push of a button, we can instantly find the relatives of those unidentified victims based on open-source DNA data. But the question is, is it worth it? What are the implications for the rights of criminals being processed through our system, or potential criminals? It's truly an unanswerable question, and as of now, 
law enforcement being able to use this open source data is important for identifying victims as well as perpetrators. And until the legislation steps in, I personally think it's an amazing idea and a super important advancement in the scientific and the true crime world. Well, I have to go finish up my final exam, and I will see you guys on the next episode of Sidebar. And as always, we like to end by taking a moment to remember the victim in this case, Shelly Christian. May you finally get the justice you deserve. 